As St. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Greeks desire wisdom. Known and universally praised for their love of wisdom, the Greek philosophers in various ways attempted to heed those famous words, know thyself, which were carved, which are carved on the portal of Apollo's temple at Delphi. Without the benefit of revelation, the Greeks certainly did their best in approaching the human mystery. It's not surprising, however, that our modern culture, which rejects that very light which was denied the Greeks, finds itself in a state of utter confusion as to the meaning of the human person. St. John Paul the Great, commenting on our modern day identity crisis, on man's struggle today to know himself, once wrote that man is no longer able to see himself as mysteriously different from other earthly creatures. Enclosed in the narrow horizon of his physical nature, he is somehow reduced to being a thing and no longer grasps the transcendent character of his existence as man. Modern culture has accepted the notion that the human person is, at heart, nothing more than another thing, a physical object, and has found countless ways to use and abuse him accordingly. Ours is a culture of convenience and efficiency. Like material objects, everyone is considered replaceable each relationship seemingly interchangeable. Pope Francis has coined the term throwaway culture to describe such a climate. Ours is a culture of instant gratification and easy fixes, and we exalt independence at all costs. Vulnerability and dependence make us uneasy, so we champion divorce, contraception, and abortion in the name of individual freedom and fulfillment. And yet, despite such measures, so many today only find disappointment and frustration as they fail to know themselves and to achieve true and lasting intimacy in their relationships. It is in response to such a climate that John Paul began his Theology of the Body lectures with a study of the first books of Genesis. For John Paul, these passages of the Bible take to heart the Greek command to know thyself and in fact respond in a profoundly satisfying way to man's deepest questions about himself. And so this afternoon, I'd like to describe four key elements of what Adam, the first man, discovers so that we might be better equipped to respond to our culture's grave miscalculation of the human person. And in fact, to discover the divine wisdom in a way of life that today's world often perceives as foolishness. The first element I want to address is knowledge. A key distinction that John Paul makes is that Adam, in the second account of Genesis, really comes to know himself in two ways. The first way comes through his experience of encountering the animals. Incapable of striking up a conversation with the animals around him, the best Adam can do is to observe them, note their distinctive features, no doubt, and name them accordingly. But what he really learns in this process is something about himself. Adam discovers that he is not them. He is different from and superior to them. In fact, he discovers that he's quite alone because none of the animals is truly fit to be his companion. 
Adam realizes that he has more in common with his creator than with his fellow created beings. It is he alone who converses with God, he alone who exists in a state of intimacy with his creator, a condition in which no other being in the physical world is remotely capable of abiding because intimacy is a spiritual connection. It is important that we keep this point in mind as we go along today. True intimacy is a spiritual connection and the capacity for intimacy requires a dimension beyond the mere physical. And though man's capacity for such a relationship is a tremendous revelation about his nature, it remains only a step on the way to Adam's coming to know himself. In fact, John Paul refers to this moment as Adam's negative knowledge of himself. In observing and naming the animals, he learns what he is not. For a deeper, more complete knowledge, Adam must wait until the woman is presented to him by God. Upon seeing her, of course, he famously exclaims, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. For the first time in creation, we witness an expression of joy. But what John Paul points out to us is that in this moment of laying eyes upon the woman for the first time, Adam is not simply dazzled by her sexual difference, by her distinctly feminine beauty. We are certainly not to imagine him sort of ogling at her, nor to paraphrase him saying, wow, look at that. Rather, it is in response to the similarity of her body to his own, and recognizing immediately the inner likeness to himself that it reveals. It's almost as if Adam says, wow, look at me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That's who I am. And his self-knowledge is perfected through her. In encountering another notably different from, yet in a more profound way like himself, Adam more fully knows himself. In searching for an affirmation of his identity, he finds just the thing in his encounter with Eve. Man's fullest kind of self-knowledge comes through community, through a loving encounter with another like himself. It is truly fascinating how in knowing, in encountering another, you do come to know yourself more fully. I make it a point to ask my students at Christendom who have just returned from spending a semester in Rome, traveling around, together, just how much better they came to know one another after traveling together, after an intense trip where they were thrown together for long periods of time, sometimes in extreme conditions, and, and they usually chuckle, right? Some of them became best friends, some of them never want to speak to each other again, right? Many of us here today have been on an intense trip, a marriage that has lasted a lot longer than one semester. And while no doubt you could tell tales about the virtues and faults of your spouse, what I'd like you to consider is what you have come to learn about yourself through such daily encounter. In my own experience, I find in an embarrassed sort of way that my flaws do come into relief. 17 years ago today when I said I do, I confess I thought I was a pretty good catch. <laughs> but when our lives sort of bump up against one another in such an intimate daily way, we discover much about ourselves through our spouses or our children's reactions, through their responses to our own behavior. And sometimes it isn't pretty. I didn't know I had such a bad temper or was such a slob, but the fact remains, without such close encounters, without such moments of self-discovery, you can't grow. You stagnate. Or at the very least, your self-image is skewed because there's no one to respond to you, no one to reflect off. 
Humans need feedback. We need mirrors, if you will, in life to understand ourselves and to know who we are. And it's not primarily that negative feedback that I'm actually referring to. Most of the time, it's the positive, loving feedback of those closest to us that provides an essential affirmation of our identities and helps us to discover who we are. This simple yet profound moment stands in stark contrast to our modern idea of knowledge, of knowing, which is very limited in scope. Our culture today reduces what we can know, reduces truth, ultimately, to the realm of science and what it can tell us about the physical world. Absurd modern phrases like, that's your truth, this is my truth, don't hold up very well in physics class. Knowing in a scientific way still has real meaning for us as a culture. It is that knowledge at a distance, like Adam observing the animals. Francis Bacon, the father of the scientific method, sums up such an attitude when he describes the act of dissection in the field of biology. He declared, through great effort, we force nature to give up her secrets. That's about right. We step back, we put gloves on, we lay something on a table, and we slice it up. But can this be the model for coming to know a person? Impossible. Can one person ever come to know another through distance and detachment, by sheer observation or interrogation? It's just not how it works. It's clear you might know about a person through detached study, or through their Facebook page, or through their resume, but you will never know a person that way. True personal knowledge comes never through detachment, but only through attachment, through real live encounter, conversation, and ultimately through love. And so it is essential to recognize that personal knowledge, the knowing of persons, is of a different order than scientific knowledge or knowledge of objects. And owing to this distinction, there's going to be a difference in the way we communicate that knowledge. And so on to communication, the next element I want to address. What pops into our head when we use the word communication today? Perhaps we think of the ubiquitous college communications major. Perhaps it brings to mind the role technology plays in disseminating information, in getting the facts out, in the information age, the age of the Google search. What St. John Paul points out is that the word communicate has come a long way from its original meaning. The Latin root of the word communication is cum unio, with one or one with. And it pertains to a very particular sphere of reality, the personal sphere. Why? Because we only communicate with persons. Think about it. How do I become one with an apple? Well, only by eating it, only by destroying its identity and making it my own. That's not communicating. That's digesting. Communicating has to do with uniting, becoming one with another, and yet preserving the being of each at the same time. There's a balance. When we receive the Holy Eucharist, we appropriately refer to this act as communicating. We are becoming one with our Lord, and yet our identity is not destroyed, but actually perfected and enhanced through the relationship. And so communication in the fullest sense is about making one person known to another. It's not first about making facts known, but a person. It's a much fuller, richer concept. And so I have two elements left to consider here. First, how does one person communicate with another? Well, since a person cannot be known merely by facts listed on a piece of paper, and further, since a person, unlike an object of science, cannot be known by force, it follows 
that a person, in order to be known, must reveal himself, must make himself known to another through his own initiative. That is to say, freely. We have a word to describe when someone offers something freely to another, and that word is gift. Point number three, I'm gonna talk about gift. One of the most poignant images illustrating the nature of gift is in the author O. Henry's short story, The Gift of the Magi. You may remember it as the short tale of a young couple, poor as church mice, who make a rather blundering, seemingly foolish Christmas gift exchange. He sells his heirloom watch, his prized possession, his only possession of worth. He sells his watch to buy a set of combs for her beautiful hair. Well, unbeknownst to him, she sells her hair to a wig shop to buy a chain for his watch. <laughs> so from a purely physical perspective, those gifts, <laughs> the watch chain and the hair combs that they present to one another that fateful Christmas Eve are a complete disaster. <laughs> Neither would be of any practical use to the other. But from a metaphysical point of view, those gifts were a triumphal success. This is so because the physical item that we refer to as a gift is really only one critical dimension of a gift. The cookies we bring to welcome a neighbor, or the engagement ring a young man offers his girlfriend. These are tokens, visible, tangible items that, resents, that represent something equally real, but invisible. The gold watch chain and the sparkling set of hair combs from the story represent a love that was ready and willing to sacrifice generously for the happiness of the other. And what shines so clearly in the story is that even the most irrelevant gifts communicate a deeper truth. The very uselessness of the items that the young Jim and Della exchange in the story only highlights for us the truth that gifts are more than simply material. Those physical tokens carried with them a genuine spiritual reality. This idea that a gift is always both sensible and spiritual is further confirmed at those times in life when a gift we offer is rejected or not received in its fullness. Say my new neighbor rejects my cookies, or the girlfriend accepts the engagement ring from the young man, but insists at once on having the diamond transferred to a grander setting. Both scenarios should cause one to cringe because when a gift is rejected or simply not accepted in its fullness, in its entirety, it's spoiled and the giver is wounded. The only proper way to receive a gift is just that, to receive it, to accept it in the fullness in which it is offered. And so in the realm of personal communication, we find a similar dynamic, where in coming to know one another, each person essentially offers himself freely and willingly in hopes of being accepted gratefully and completely. Such a movement should not come as a total surprise to us. Persons and gifts both exist at that intersection of the material and the spiritual worlds. Both contain dimensions that are visible and invisible. The space in which human persons operate, in which they communicate through a dynamic of giving and receiving, is what John Paul calls the world of symbol, the final element I'd like to describe this afternoon. Just as every gift involves some sort of a sensible token, some physical sign of an invisible reality, so every human person operates accordingly. There must exist some physical reality which displays, which presents me in all of my invisible truth to someone else. What is my symbol? What physical reality represents my inner dimension most perfectly and completely? Well, 
You've guessed it, I'm sure, my body. John Paul called the human body the sign and place of relations with others. It is, in fact, the symbol of the human person. Now, everyday symbols, we see them all the time. Symbols always remind us of something. They bring an invisible reality to one's attention. But a perfect symbol, a perfect symbol does not merely remind us of something. A perfect symbol makes an invisible reality truly present. That's what our bodies do. My body doesn't make me present in some fashion, like a photo might, or a voice recording, or even a memory. My body makes me to be fully and totally here. There's no fuller way for me to be here than when I am in the flesh. This is always what the sacraments do. The sacred host, because it looks and tastes like bread physically, is meant to remind us of Christ and that he is food for our soul. But it also truly makes him present. The water at baptism reminds us of Christ's cleansing of our souls, of our mystical dying and rising with him, but it also effects that very cleansing, dying, and rising. That is why our bodies, too, can be referred to as sacramental, with a small s, because they make present a genuine spiritual reality. John Paul reflects on the original state of personal communication in Genesis, when the first man and woman gazed upon each other naked and were not ashamed. He explains this experience to us as an example of perfect communication between the two, a perfect exchange of gift, if you will. They held nothing back. Their nakedness without shame indicates a full and total acceptance of the other. It is if, in that moment of nakedness without shame, Adam didn't see Eve's body. He just saw Eve and vice versa. Their bodies made their spiritual dimensions perfectly present. The idea of a split between body and spirit was alien to them. This is why we can describe their state as one of perfect intimacy. It is, in fact, a spiritual bond symbolized by their physical bond. And John Paul insists that it is precisely in this mutual acceptance of one another that Adam and Eve truly affirm one another's identities. This is a fundamental principle of all human relationships, according to John Paul. When a person is welcomed, when he or she is accepted in his fullness by another as a gift, as a person of surpassing worth and dignity, as Adam rejoiced when he saw Eve, only then does that person begin to understand, to know himself to be such. Only then does he begin to grasp the fullness of who he is. And we don't need to be married to experience this dynamic. This is the pattern of our existence from its very beginning, for we do not come into the world alone. From the first moment of our existence, God designed it so that each one of us would emerge directly from the heart of a family, an already existing bodily community of people. And our self-image is intended to develop and flourish in this very concrete and visible context. And so we are meant to be touched by, formed by, the dynamic of marriage, whether we ultimately enter into our own marriages or not. This first community rejoices at our existence, and this rejoicing helps us to know our place in the world. Renowned retreat master Father Jacques Philippe echoes this principle when he writes, we urgently need the mediation of another's eyes, another's eyes, to love ourselves and to accept ourselves. We need to be looked upon by someone who says, as God did through the prophet Isaiah, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. If we as persons are not welcomed and treated as gifts, we will be crippled in our self-understanding 
and wounded in our identities. This very wounding is illustrated in Genesis just moments after the creation account. Just moments after beholding one another naked without shame, we find the first man and woman hiding in the bushes, covering their bodies with leaves. It should not surprise us that the first sin of humankind had everything to do with a botched gift exchange. In that exchange, Adam and Eve struggled to be receivers before God. From the very beginning, they had known nothing else but God's total generosity and care for them in the garden. And yet somehow, they could not stand having to accept to receive such generosity on God's terms. They wanted things their way, even if it meant breaking the single commandment that God had put before them. They chose to accept the devil's suggestion that God was not loving, but jealous, that his command to them regarding the fruit of the tree of knowledge was not for their good, but only to withhold power from them. Now, this idea was totally insupportable in the face of God's complete generosity to them, but we know our first ancestors chose to accept the lie of the tempter. As John Paul declared, Adam and Eve questioned the gift in their hearts and the love which was at the source of its donation. They chose to believe that God's relationship to them was not rooted in gift, but in a power play. In this grand act of distrust, Adam and Eve turned their hearts from God. By eating the fruit, they refused God's friendship in favor of taking something that they wanted. There is a radical difference between taking and receiving. A receiver accepts the gift as a whole. He sets no conditions upon it, but receives it in the fullness in which it is offered. A taker is one who selects that portion of what he desires without regard for the relationship. This attitude is utterly outside the dynamic of gift. When Adam and Eve treated God in this way, they estranged themselves from him. That's what happens when a gift goes badly. The relationship that the gift established is wounded. Imagine presenting a loved one with a gift, and he responds, okay, what do you want from me? By suggesting that your gift offered in friendship was only an attempt to manipulate, it cuts you to the core. He reveals a distrust which is toxic to a relationship. And Adam and Eve experienced this consequence in most dramatic fashion. What John Paul notes here is that the moment Adam and Eve separate themselves from God, they separate themselves from one another. The moment they attempted to take rather than to receive from God is the very moment in which they begin to take rather than to receive with regard to one another. Their peaceful gaze of nakedness without shame is suddenly shattered, and we see the two hiding their bodies from one another. They do this because they instinctively know their personhood is at risk. Their very unity of body and spirit feels like it's disintegrating. And from that moment on, sinful man, fallen man, has been marked by an inability to perceive that the body is the symbol of the human person. Sinful man sees what is physical in the person as detached from what is spiritual, distracting from a person's inner dimensions rather than revealing them. The physical body now appears simply to be some kind of possession, another object to take and to enjoy. The very seeds of our throwaway culture were planted in Eden. Adam and Eve made the very error we witness today. They thought they could gain knowledge of God by stealing his secrets. That's not how we come to know God, because God isn't some object we can study and recreate in our lab. God is a person. Adam and Eve should have been striving for a deeper personal knowledge of God 
the knowledge that comes from having a loving relationship with someone, not trying to acquire a kind of scientific knowledge of God's secrets. We used to call that Gnosticism. Adam and Eve were duped into thinking that they could become like God by information, by some set of facts, rather than through a transformation, a loving and grateful union with their creator in whose image they were made. Contraception itself mirrors this very dynamic. The church does not teach that contraception is wrong because it uses knowledge gained from science, but rather because it uses that scientific mastery, that scientific control, as a substitute for self-control. Contraception attempts to short-circuit man's spiritual dimension with technology, to confuse a human person with a mere physical object. Any truly personal method of family planning must be just that, personal. Like a person, it must include dimensions both physical and spiritual. Natural family planning is absolutely scientific, but in addition to that, it demands effort from a person's invisible dimension, from his intelligence, from his free will. It demands self-mastery and sacrifice, something no mere animal could do. Those very spiritual powers which made man different from the rest of the animal world must remain in play if man is to remain above that world and still capable of intimacy with God. Without that connection, intimacy between man and woman is a lost cause. And this lost cause is what we witness moments after the first sin, when the two hide from one another and from God, filled with shame and ready to blame. What's more, because man and woman are not replicas of one another, the fallout from the first sin did not affect them in an identical manner. In response to their betrayal, the Lord declares the consequences of sin to Adam and Eve. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will lord it over you. John Paul calls that woman whose desire shall be for her husband a victim of pure sentimentality. Fallen woman will find herself prone to romanticizing and idealizing the opposite sex, often to her own detriment. She will crave the gift of the man so much. She will crave that relationship that she will prematurely offer herself, often at the expense of her own dignity. Fallen woman, as it were, struggles with waiting to receive a gift. She wants that personal connection so much that she is sometimes willing to compromise her very identity and can at times even risk inviting and accepting a pattern of objectification. John Paul refers to her counterpart, fallen man, he who would lord it over her and view a woman merely as a potential object of sexual satisfaction as suffering from pure sensuality. In a sad compliment to the woman who struggles with waiting to receive a gift, he finds it nearly impossible to give that gift. His longing for sensual enjoyment is so strong that it inhibits his freedom to give, his ability to master his desires. He loses his ability to distinguish the woman from among the world of objects and is inclined to use her. In both cases, fallen man and woman tend to miss the full reality of the other and tend toward a dehumanization of the other in their relationships. Notice here, this new dynamic of relating between sinful man and woman, at its heart, eats away at that uniqueness that once set them apart from the animals, that freedom, that capacity for intimacy. Instead, they tend toward a reduced version of love by which they relate as objects motivated by desire, whether physical or emotional failing to appreciate the fullness of one another's interior dimensions, 
No matter how hard they might try, their physical bodies cannot substitute for spiritual intimacy. We must always keep this in mind. The body does not create intimacy. As a symbol, it has the capacity to express, to show intimacy, but it alone cannot constitute what is essentially an invisible connection. Think about it. If a total stranger puts his arm around you on the metro, how do you feel? Violated. That physical touch sent a message that there was a level of intimacy between you, but because there isn't, because you don't even know this person, you feel disgust. In a more subtle way, contraception eats away at the intimacy of a marriage. Love can only exist in an environment of mutual giving and receiving. There's no such thing as a partial gift or a partial reception of a gift. The only alternative is taking and using. The abstinence, the sacrifice required by natural family planning, is mocked as foolishness by our culture. What the culture does not recognize is that sometimes love speaks the loudest in a gesture of sacrifice. A wife who hears her husband say he'll abstain rather than ask her to contracept, hears, I respect and cherish you as a whole person. You are not merely an object for my pleasure. She hears, I love you, through that sacrifice. The young couple in Henry's story, having sacrificed their greatest material treasures, seemingly for nothing, hear, I love you, in that moment. That's why the author calls them the magi, the wise ones who are called foolish by the world. And no one understands such a generous foolishness more than Jesus Christ. We must never forget that Adam and Eve's fateful curse, that Eve's desire shall be for her husband and that he will lord it over her, is not the Bible's last word on the subject of marital bliss. As a matter of fact, St. Paul reveals a new standard for marriage, a new model for those who have been redeemed by Christ's grace. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In response to the fate of Adam, once doomed to lord it over and dominate his wife, we see that the Christian man is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to be willing, as Christ did, to literally pour out his own life for her. True headship is not that of a tyrant, but of a lover. He does not exercise authority by taking, but by giving. As a wife, this sounds really nice to me, uh, but they are some fairly heavy words to receive for our menfolk. They pose a heroic challenge to husbands and are frankly impossible to live without supernatural assistance. But as Christian men strive to live this call to radical generosity, we must ask, how exactly are we to interpret the submission of the Christian wife to such headship? Talk about a term that is considered foolish by the world today. And yet we must ponder St. Paul's words. If a husband is called to exercise headship primarily through giving, it would seem that a wife's submission is above all else her way of receiving her husband's self-gift. In fact, John Paul describes a wife's submission as an experiencing of her husband's love. She is becoming vulnerable, allowing him, in fact, to do certain things for her. How can he give his life to a wife who will not accept it? What many of us already realize is that being a receiver is more difficult than it sounds. Adam and Eve couldn't stand for it. Being on the receiving end of a gift requires, as Gabrielle Marcel wrote, a willingness to accept the unexpected. After all, with a gift, like Forrest Gump in the box of chocolates, we never quite know what we're going to get. There is a radical trust required of a receiver and a vulnerability that can be frightening, to say the least. Nonetheless, it is difficult to put into words how inspiring a wife's appreciative manner can be to her husband. 
nor how deeply his own sense of identity is affected by a wife's confidence in him. There's an underlying asymmetry in the marital dynamic that is reflected in the very sexual difference itself. St. Edith Stein pointed out that a woman physically designed to receive and nurture emerges as spiritually inclined toward receptivity. A man physically characterized by strength and an ability to act on the world emerges as more deed-oriented. He is inclined to foster a relationship with a woman through giving, through active deeds on her behalf. She, on the other hand, seems especially inclined to foster that union through her reception of those deeds. Now, you might be wondering right about now, isn't love supposed to be mutual? Does a wife have nothing to give? Well, hopefully I don't need to dignify that answer with a question. Hopefully all you husbands out there know what we do. My point is that in spite of the dozens of generous things we wives might do all day long, a wife's most valuable, most cherished gift to her husband is not a thing at all. It's an attitude. It's a fundamental disposition of appreciation. Listen to St. Paul's words here as he concludes his instruction. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice the language. Why is the husband called to love and the wife to respect? Doesn't a man want to be loved? Of course, but for a man, respect translates to love. Why? Because respect is the synonym for appreciation, for gratitude, for the gifts that he has already given, for the deeds he has done. That's why it's so hard for me to choose Christmas gifts for my dad and my husband, because deep down, the greatest thing I can really do for either of them is to be thrilled with the gifts that they've given me. When we really want to make a man feel loved, we don't buy him stuff. I mean, you can buy him all the stuff you want, but if you really want to affirm his identity to the core, you compliment his deeds, his actions performed on our behalf. We admire his handiwork. We value his ideas and opinions. We act happy. A woman's grateful response to what he does is her gift to him. And seriously, her admiration can actually mean more to him than all of the dishes and meals and sleepless nights with the kids combined. A woman sensitive to a man's soul knows that in an appreciative manner can build him up and inspire him to become even better. St. Paul's words here reflect the truth that men and women tend to experience love differently. A woman craves love in the form of a gift. A man craves love in the form of gratitude for that gift. And please don't misunderstand this point. Women deserve gratitude. We absolutely require respect in our relationships, but we usually distinguish it from love. I do want my husband to appreciate me. I deserve his respect, but I still want him to bring me flowers and take me out to dinner. It's not a substitute. Gifts mean love to me as much as appreciation and respect mean love to him. What St. Paul seems to be asking of married couples is that they, like Christ does for Adam, work to undo the damage of original sin. If giving until the bitter end is what Christ calls husbands to do, it's because maybe on any given day, what they really feel like doing is sitting back, taking what they want and enjoying. If receiving and appreciating is what Christ asks a wife to do, Maybe it's because on any given day, she feels, as Eve did, that she can really manage things better on her own. Go after what she wants, not trusting that Adam could ever step up, not really believing that he could face the challenges asked of him. The problem is, without a generous giver and a trusting receiver, there can be no gift. Without gift, there can be no love. And without an environment of love, 
human persons start to lose their humanity. Our capacity to experience intimacy in our marriages invol involves restoring a gift-giving dynamic which at times feels like the opposite of our inclinations. And yet, when we pull it off, it yields a peace and a happiness utterly beyond the devil's imagination. As we learn from the young couple in The Gift of the Magi, it is precisely when human beings give to the point of sacrifice that they find their greatest joy. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Thank you. Thank you.